the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Hi there, everybody, and welcome to episode 18 of Planted. Uh, it's a beautiful morning in Oakland, and today we've got Narbe Alexandrian, the president and CEO of Canopy Rivers, with us. I'm so excited to have you here today. Um, just a little bit about him. Um, well, actually, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, Narbe? Sure, yeah. Um, I don't know how far back you want to go there, but uh, originally from the technology industry, spent about close to a decade in uh, in technology and in around startups, uh, large companies looking at startups, looking at buying, investing, uh, white labeling, running startups. Um, claim to fame uh, was, uh, I guess, the, the, the last technology venture fund uh, that I worked with, uh, which was Omer's Ventures, largest te tech VC in Canada. We made a, a, a strategic investment into uh, Shopify back in the early days. Uh, companies worth about $160 billion right now, made about 40 investments. Many of them have been huge successes and really, really saw the writing on the wall within the cannabis industry um, back in 2018, where legalization was uh, just around the corner in Canada. The U.S. was looking at legalizing more and more every single day as, as more states were signing up for medical or uh, adult use. And uh, really what, what really attracted me to the industry was the growth rate of what we're seeing uh, taking place. So it looked a lot like the tech industry. And when I mean growth rate, it isn't just about making money. It's that because the industry is growing so fast, uh, any of the ideas and thesis that companies do make are, can quickly come true or they quickly be obsolete. So there's an ever-changing guard in terms of what companies are, are coming about. And that's what attracted me because that gives startups a huge potential of displacing some of the large incumbents that are out there. And we've already seen that take place numerous times over with many of them, U.S. MSOs coming in, uh, eating the breakfast for, for some of the Canadian licensed producers out there. Why are you interested in cannabis besides that? I mean, I've always been interested in the plant uh, ever since um, my, my days in high school, and um, it's it's uh, I, I I I've never used it for medical purposes per se, uh, but for recreational purposes, I've used it um, many times over. And um, I, I think it's a if I if I could really drill down that question into into why I I, I like the the sector so much, it's that I think it's a fantastic investment for society. And I say this because if you ever watch TV, cable TV, you see these pharmaceutical commercials come out that say, hey, to help with your antacid, here's a pill that you can take. But here are a list of side effects. And they talk to the side effects while some guy is throwing a football to their grandkid and, um, and, and they're cooking dinner together. And the <laughs> visuals don't match the, the narrative in the background. Totally. And, and it, scares the, it scares the crap out of you when you watch something like that. And then you look at the cannabis side. Anecdotally, we know it helps with arthritis, with nausea, with pain relief, with depression, with anxiety, and the list goes on and on. I do think that we're still ways ahead from medically being able to say this is what it does just because clinical trials take a long time. But I think it's a fantastic investment for us to make as a society of at least seeing this thing through. And heck, like it could be, we could come to a situation where we find out that if you mix Tylenol with cannabis, something, something happens. We're not there yet, but we need to get there. We need to really um, put, get us closure around cannabis instead of just prohibiting it or 
or legalizing it to really understand what kind of medical um, abilities that this plant can give us. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. I, I, I know I've worked with, um, well, I've worked with thousands of people with cannabis. And one of the things that especially a lot of older clients will talk about is the fact that they're using it in place of even over-the-counter medications like ibuprofen. And some of them have mentioned that, you know, they had family members that they wished would have known about it because they ended up with stomach bleeds because of, you know, ibuprofen usage. Um, I feel like there's, there's a lot, there's a lot more research for sure. And there's also just the idea of educating people. I, I have a lot of conversations about, you know, when we, when we educate consumers because they're savvy. Um, and then, and that's not only around, you know, cannabis itself, but also how to be able to be politically involved so that we can influence policy. Um, a lot of people get frustrated when policies don't match their values, especially with cannabis. Um, and it's been one of those things where teaching people that they can, that th what they need to do is, you know, let the people in government know that not only are they using cannabis, but they're active in society and productive and they vote. And um, I think that that makes a huge difference for policy. Education really helps with creating more educated policy. And I'm really curious, especially with like, you just recently allowed edibles in Canada, but what are you, what are you seeing on the policy front in Canada around, around those kind of things? Um, well, from, from a policy perspective, we, we've seen regulators come out and say that it, unlike the U.S. where you can buy an edible that has 100 milligrams of THC in it, we're going to cap it off at 10 milligrams. And the reason why they want to do that is because they want to, they, they know that there's um, that there's a lot of risk of having these high dosage products in market. They could be available through the medical channels, but not through the recreational channels. And I think that's a that's, that's a good idea because first off, like we, we've looked at data that shows that. Um, let me back up a bit. We looked at data of the, the entire body in Canada, and there's consumers who are using have used cannabis within the last 12 months. There are intenders, which are looking to use it within the next 12 months. And there's flat-out rejectors who say they never want to use it. And the split goes something like 20% are consumers, 40% uh, are uh, intenders, and then 40% are rejectors. When you look through the data even more, you find out the intenders, the people who want to use it within the next 12 months, 60% of them have tried cannabis in the past. And then you look at the rejectors, and this is the, where the data becomes really interesting. 25% of rejectors, people who say, well, now I'd love to use it, have used cannabis in the past. You'll drill, drill down to that 25% even more. You find out that many of them started off with a homemade edible. Oof. And anybody who's tried a homemade edible has probably had a bad trip, uh, too much THC at the same time. You're, you're not used to it. It does attack you in multiple ways versus smoking. It only, it only uh, affects you in one way. Um, and they were turned off by it altogether. So I like the rules that came out with 10 milligrams because it does bring in non-consumers into the industry and really pushes things forward. That, that's from the, the, the edibles perspective. Um, and then outside of that, um, I, I think Canada needs to do a bit more work on the diversity initiatives around cannabis, making sure that we have uh, um, a, a diverse set of owners and CEOs and operators of these cannabis businesses, whether that be women or uh, or, or black, Hispanics, 
uh, minorities. Um, I, I think we need to do a better job from that angle for sure. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. There's, there definitely has to be more, more ownership around that. And I, I agree with you as far as edibles dosage. There's, there are a lot of people who've been turned off by bad experiences. Personally, I don't eat homemade edibles anymore. <laughs> I want to, you know, you have to have the conversation about milligrams. And, and that is something that I've noticed um, working with. I, I have a, a private practice where I work with clients. And um, when I talk about dosage, they're like, volume? What are we talking about? And it's like, no, milligrams <laughs> of THC. <laughs> know your dose. Yeah. And I, I think it's it's really important um, for the public to understand that dosage is such an essential thing. And the fact is, is that because we're walking chemistry experiments, we all respond differently. So when somebody comes to me and says, hey, my friend, you know, gets great sleep from these chocolate covered blueberries and I want to try them. I always say, well, that's wonderful because, you know, conversation is the beginning. Conversation is normalization. But now let's figure out what works for you. And a lot of that is around creating a safe container for experimentation. Um, and I really feel like there needs to be more conversations around that because, you know, it, it's it's just like when I um I, I do uh, training a few times a year with the pharmacology students at UCSF and they always ask for exact ratios and dosages for certain ailments. And one of the things that I tell them is, as you know, with pharmaceuticals, like it's not a one size fits all thing. And that's why they have all those lovely messages with those happy commercials <laughs> that always freaks me out, <laughs> you know? You do get caught in those images, too, and you kind of step away. You're like, wait a minute, they're trying to trick me by dumping me with all this side effects while making me watch the, the American dream, really, because that, that's what they're really portraying in those commercials. Yeah, oh, and for many years, I, I didn't have cable, so... I would only watch TV if I was at a friend's house or um, or visiting my parents. But now since I'm married and my husband is a football fan, uh, we definitely have <laughs> cable. But at first when you're away from it and you look at it and you're like, this is surreal. <laughs> but it's, it's, yeah. it's accepted because we see it so much. We're inundated with it. And I, you know, I, I just... Yeah, you don't you don't get that with cannabis. As a matter of fact, when you know people are using it, a lot of times they realize that there's a lot of positive side effects that happen with it too, and that's yeah, that's really nice to hear. You know, totally. Like I live in Canada, and we see hockey games all the time on TV. And hockey's a big sport in Canada. And when you're watching a hockey game, there's kids watching, of course. Like kids, like there's lots of kids who idolize hockey players and they love the sport and during the breaks, you see beer commercials. Uh, during the, the game itself, on the banners, you see beer advertisements. So I, that frustrates me as well, because why, why, like, why does cannabis have such a difficulty in marketing and advertising within Canada or even the U.S. as well, while you have these liquor companies who are able to do whatever they want? And from everything that I've known, like nobody smokes cannabis or ingests cannabis and becomes violent and instead they'd probably fall asleep. Um, and and I, I think we're a ways away from the stigma fully being off and being treated similarly to alcohol. I think right now cannabis is more so closely uh, looked at as a vice as similar to tobacco. And I think it's going to take some time. Uh, and, and of course, and I would say this, that humans ourselves 
we're not we don't like radical change we like incremental change things don't happen overnight uh, and i think it's going to take maybe a decade for us to really go through the the ups and downs of getting this product accepted by the masses yeah i i agree i i and i think that a lot of it has to do with peer conversations too because well when we were still in medical i had a woman who came to visit me and she had she'd had breast cancer several years before and she had really bad neuropathy that her doctor wasn't able to help her with gabapentin didn't help all the other pharmaceuticals that they tried didn't help so her um her doctor referred her to the apothecarium and she came to see me with her son she was even to the point where she's like I don't want anyone to know that I was here I'm like no we don't we don't disclose mm-hmm. you know visits from people <laughs> you know and she was really nervous about getting high so I recommended an 18 to 1 CBD to THC tincture for her and I said you know let's let's try this let's let me give you a dosage to start with we're going to go slow and low and you know if you have anxiety this might be helpful for you too and she was like I'm not anxious and and you know how we know our parents better than they know themselves sometimes her son just looks at her and is like yeah you got anxiety mom (laughs) (laughs) and so she she was skeptical she took it home you know and she called me three days later and it was, it was like talking to a totally different person. She's like, there's my girl. And I was like, Hey, what's going on? You know, she's like, you know, this is the first thing that's helped me with my neuropathy. I I have the, the numbness is still there, but the burning sensation is gone. The pain is gone. And I didn't realize that I had anxiety. This is really, really helpful. And I'm so mad that the stigma kept me away from something that gave me relief. And I want to be able to talk to my peers because she was a senior. She's like, I, I want to, I want to spread the word. And the kicker was that she's, she was a retired pharmaceutical salesperson. And uh-huh. I, yeah. Uh-huh. And I was like, spread the word, mama, <laughs> tell people what's going on, <laughs> you know, because it really, especially I think with, um, with our senior population, I just think human beings in general, it's like the peer discussions, like what's acceptable and what's not acceptable are just, are so very valuable and relevant. Yeah, it's all, totally. I, you, your, your story reminded me of the uh, FDA uh, consultation on CBD and um, there, there were talk, people were coming up and talking about how CBD affects the human body. These are doctors, these are, uh, sociologist, uh, just different walks of life, just to talk about from its, in its entirety how this, um, how this cannabinoid is going to affect the human body uh, physically, mentally, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the doctors came up and said, oh, yeah, one of the, one of the side effects that we saw with CBD is uh, feel good. And the FDA says, the, the person on the FDA was like, um, can we take a step back? Like, what does that mean? And the doctor said, well, we've anecdotally, sorry, through, through our research, we've seen that people who've tried uh, CBD generally say that they feel good afterwards and it, it just has this general sense of well-being and things are going to be okay and uh, everything's going to work out and and I thought that was such a strong message coming from a doctor in an FDA setting um, that just goes to show how little we know about this because we keep talking about CBD as being help, helping out with uh, nausea or arthritis or uh, so-and-so, but there's a, there's a huge mental component to it that it's going to take us a while to really uncover because everyone's really wired differently. Yeah, it's true. I mean, that's 
when people say that cannabis or CBD, I should say, is not psychoactive, I mean, it, it is because it creates a change in the state of your mind. But, you know, for most of us, it's non-euphoric. And, and, you know, for how, like, personally for myself, my body's built for it. I, I work really well with CBD. But we are seeing, you know, some people who are sensitive to it. But even that in itself, it's not, it's not dangerous. It's more of a, what I've noticed with people is they can get either very elevated to the point where it almost does the opposite of what we think CBD does, like creating a little bit of anxiety, or people have a general malaise, or there's the the interaction with cytochrome P450 as well with certain pharmaceuticals. But those are like the only things that we're dealing with with CBD. So it's not, you know, for the most part, it does a lot of good. Um, but I do wish that we would have more conversations about how we are all so different with it. I mean, I I love it myself, and I know that a lot of people do really well with it. Um, but even, you know, talking about the side effects, it's like they're not they're not harmful. They're just uncomfortable, and then all you have to do is stop using it, you know. Totally, totally. There's no there's no addiction properties to it or anything of that sort either. No, and that's one of the things that, you know, we hear a lot about is that actually, you know, a lot of people are able to forego uh, medications, of course, working with their doctor um, in lieu of using cannabis. And I would really love to see a study on how many people actually either lower or forgo drinking alcohol using cannabis because I get a lot of reports back of people saying I'm not even drinking anymore because, you know, as, as human beings, we're constantly subconsciously striving for homeostasis and some of us kind of jump the shark. We're a little off. We, we use more than we need, but using cannabis in lieu of it is just, it's, it's just so much people, I can see like, in people's faces and their bodies, how much it changes things when you're not. And, and I, I love wine. I mean, you know, we, when, when we're not in COVID times, we, we do wine tasting and things like that. So I'm not anti-alcohol per se, but I think that, you know, regular usage is really impactful on the body. Mm -hmm. Um, absolutely. Yeah. And, and then there's also just like, and I think that with, going into just like the market itself. I think that's also the reason that beverages are becoming more popular because at, when people are social and there are cocktails, it's nice to have something that you can partake in that's similar to what other people are using. And with beverages being faster acting and having kind of a nice uplifting effect that doesn't last as long as an edible, it's easy to see why those are becoming more popular because we are such social beings is as humans and i was actually wondering do you are are you seeing any any drinkables on the canadian market now or in the future yeah it's actually the fastest growing segment within the canadian market so canada is a bit different uh because it's legalized in the sense that you have companies like molson coors huge alcohol company constellation huge alcohol company getting into the field Mm -hmm. And they've used their understanding of consumers in order to develop beverages for those consumers. And these beverages, there's a lot of skeptics on it because because people were looking at beverages similarly to how they were developed and marketed into the U.S. And outside of maybe a handful of companies that have successfully created beverages in the U.S. market, the rest of the beverages were very sugary, high high sugar, very sweet. 
um, tasted more like cola because they were trying to mask the taste of the, the bitterness of the cannabinoids. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then you come to the Canadian market and there's a lot of seltzers out there, uh, drinks that don't even taste like anything and, and get you uh, the, 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 the same type of feeling. They're faster acting. The offset is, is quick too. So it mimics a lot of the properties that we see in beer. And this is a fat, one of the fastest growing segments within the, the cannabis sector today. So uh, between beverages and value brands, which I can go through, um, those, those are the two areas that we're really keen on. And then when we look south of the border, because we do make investments all over the world, and we're not, we li- I live in Canada, but I do look at Canada and U.S. as, as my time as my main areas of investment. We see companies like Can C A N N doing a great job of both creating a drink, marketing the drink, and really pushing the beverage category forward. Yeah, and they just had a, a, an announcement about their celebrity investors, which is really impactful. Yes, yeah, yeah, and that, that's been um, that's been in the works for quite some time. I'm not a shareholder of, I don't, I don't have an invested in the company whatsoever. I'm just um, appreciating the talent when I see it, and, and I think they've done a fantastic job of uh, not only packaging, not only the product, the prices, uh, at a reasonable amount so that people can buy large quantities and drink volumes like they do in alcohol. Uh, but then likewise, the, the, the promotion like, of getting celebrities on board uh, and not just to, to make money, but to actually that, actually like the product and want to push the product. Uh, I, I think that that's a very powerful statement for a cannabis company today. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And going back to uh, brands, you said you, you could mention some brands. I'd love to hear that. Yeah, I mean, like if, I, if I take a step back, I, I think um, what, what people around the world are really redefining what it means to be a middle market consumer. So m- many people think middle market is um, those that aren't buying cheap or aren't buying luxury products. But the true definition of that is different. What we're seeing today is that consumers, middle market consumers, are purchasing a mix of upscale and downscale products and services. Um, so they, they don't want mediocre products, but they want to pick and choose products from both ends of the price range, depending on quality or value. So um, this, is, this, is, this is kind of like a new movement that I've really been following for quite some time now. Uh, so these are individuals, annual incomes of anywhere from 50 to 150,000, and they trade up for premium goods in some categories, clothing, um, and then they, they, they trend down or trade down in other categories as well, so just cannabis. So what we're seeing in the market today, both in Canada and the U.S., is this incredible push towards value brand in the flower segment. So th- this this is what I uh, I characterize as being 20% plus THC dry flower at a cost of under five dollars a gram. Um, and uh, we've seen this like we've seen a tremendous growth in Canada with, uh, with with brands such as Original Stash or TWD, which is Canopy Growth Com- uh, brand. Uh, and, and that segment has grown from 6% to about 30% between uh, December of 2019 to uh, September of 2020. So in nine months, we've gone from 6% to 30% of the entire, entire dry flower category. When I look at the U.S. and I look at brands like um, like Old Pal, I think Old Pal has done a tremendous job of just really owning the, the value segment. Um, and, and the value segment, the benefit of it is that it just really brings people into the category. If you're if you're a brand new flower user, you're you're likely not going to go for the fifteen twenty dollars a gram high end premium 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 cannabis. That's kind of meant for a niche of consumers who are looking for 
um, a, a very different feeling than the mass market. I think the, the, the emergence of value brands does two things. One is, as I mentioned, it brings new customers to the table. But secondly, it moves people away from the illicit market because uh, you, you start uh, offering a quality product at a price that you just can't compete with uh, because of the, the, the risk-adjusted uh, cost of buying something on the, the illicit market. Yeah, yeah, that's that's definitely, it's been something that uh, when we're having conversations in committee about pricing, that, that's come up as far as, you know, we do, in, in California, we have a very rich illicit market. <laughs> and, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, um, and that's, it's one of the things with all the overtaxation, we're actually... Tomorrow in uh, our San Francisco Cannabis Oversight Committee, we're going to be discussing the fact that San Francisco is going to delay their gross receipts tax for another year. And we're looking at actually uh, raising the ceiling on when that taxation is going to occur so that we, we can give support to especially, you know, equity companies, companies starting out that they're not getting taxed out of business because, it's extraordinarily expensive to do business in California, and especially in the San Francisco Bay Area with our crazy, crazy real estate um, on top of excise sales, cultivation tax, and just like local taxation. Like San Francisco doesn't have a, a cannabis tax per se, but Berkeley and Oakland sure do. And in some counties, it, it gets up to as high as 40% taxes all told, which is passed on to the consumer. And, and when you're looking at people who are in, you know, especially people who are lower income that are looking to have access, they're going to um, the traditional illicit market, which, as we know, is not, you know, tested. Uh, there can be so many things that happen with that. And the mishaps that we have had with cannabis have been primarily in the illicit market due to adulterants um, in the products or as we saw with like, um, cartridge gate with uh, the heavy metals and what they're adding to it that of course they weren't in legitimate dispensaries because they would have it would have shown up in the testing um, I also as far as brands go I'm just I'm wondering as we've started to get into legalization we've seen a lot of luxury brands and some of them are more about the window dressing than the actual product and I think consumers are getting smarter about that but I also wonder, you know, when you were mentioning THC levels, you know, 20% or greater, as we're starting to talk more about that, because I have to say that I've had some really high THC percentages in flowers where I haven't felt those effects that you one would think. And then I've had lower percentages, like say 13% THC, but there's been a really interesting terpene profile. So you know, I've actually, it's felt much stronger than I would have thought it was. And, and I'm, I'm wondering if, if you're seeing more conversations around the synergy between terpenes and cannabinoids and what that really means, because there's, there's a lot of hype around THC percentages, but I don't, I don't think that that's actually, I know it's not the end all be all. And I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on that. I definitely agree with you that THC isn't the end-all be-all, and, and I do totally agree that it is flawed. I even think the indica and sativa breakdown is flawed, too, because um, if you look at the genealogy of the plants and indica and sativa, they're not that different from one another. 
Um, and it's very hard to differentiate one another, especially because they've been bred so many different times mm-hmm. uh, over centuries and centuries. So um, the, the, the THC piece, it, it is a heuristic or people call it a rule of thumb, but um, it, of, of trying to figure out how, how the effect is going to be on you. And it's not necessarily a rock solid calculation of how that's going to happen. I do agree with you that there's, there's way more than THC and it's a very flawed mechanism that we use. We don't look at the, the other cannabinoids or the terpene profile and how all of those interplay with one another, what we call the entourage effect. Uh, instead, we just look at one percentage and we, we dictate what that's, what, what that's going to do to us. Do I think that we're going to go down a path where we're going to understand the different uh, reactions between the different terpenes and cannabinoids? Some people are going to care about that a lot. Um, and, and similar to the wine industry, which you brought up, where tannins are a big deal and the way... Uh, wine taste is a, is a big deal for some niche wine lovers. The mass majority of people think that the difference between a Cabernet and a Merlot is there's none. It's just it's red wine is red wine. And the difference to them, it comes down to brand. And I think that's, that, that's what we, we can't really expect the consumer to educate themselves enough to understand the terroir or the, the, what, what goes into a certain flower. Of these are the, C- the cannabinoids and these are the terpenes and this is how the THC percentage is and this is the CBD percentage, et cetera, et cetera. I think what is easier and less friction for us to really get through is creating a brand where a consumer tries it out, they get their intended effect, and they know that every single time that they go and try that same brand, the same mo- the, the same skew, that they're going to get that same feeling. Mm-hmm. And we don't, we don't really see that in the cannabis industry en masse yet. Uh, at Canadian Rivers, we've, we've had the luxury of uh, hearing pitches from 2,200 companies across uh, the, the world. Um, and these are entrepreneurs, 4,000 to 4,500 4, entrepreneurs sitting down and walking us through what they believe the cannabis industry will look like. And we, we've seen a lot of brands uh, through, that, through that process. I think it was, I think it was about six or 700 of them that we've seen up to date. And many of them don't really understand that piece yet of, of how important it is to create a stable product that consumers can come back to over and over and over again and over a period of time that they create uh, brand equity and brand affinity. And the companies that really engage us uh, in terms of getting us interested and getting us want to follow up with them and potentially make an investment in them are the ones that are have this crazy amount of consumer obsession. Like they know everything about their customer. They know where else they shop. They know what else they buy. They know uh, what they like, what they don't like. They ask them all the time, how did you feel? Can you give us your, your, your true feedback? Uh, don't worry if it's negative. We're going to fix this. We're going to tweak that. We're going to look at that. And they just really dig deep on the consumer side. And those are the ones that we've seen probably some of the most success uh, and, 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 and depends on geography as well. And, um, I really like those stories because if you're going to sell a consumer product, then you can't just put it on the shelf and say, this is cannabis. I have a nice floral logo on it and let's sell it. You have to really get into the mindset of, of, of your consumer base. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, um, I completely agree. I'm, I'm wondering, I was just thinking about like, you know, consumers and, you know, education and, and what they're attracted to and how are you seeing like, Back in the day when everything wasn't prepackaged and we would actually weigh out cannabis for people, I used to have people that wanted to look at the buds and they would tell me, oh, well, I'm, 
I'm more about aesthetics than effects, which always surprised me. Um, but do you what do you, what do you think that um, the place is for aesthetics in cannabis? Um, I, I think there's definitely like a, a a niche that thinks very highly of aesthetics. But for, for if you look at the data, um, the one of the fastest growing segments within dry flower is pre-rolls. Mm-hmm. And if you, if you think of it from that perspective, nobody really opens the pre-roll to see what's inside of it. Actually defeats the whole purpose of paying extra for a pre-roll. Right. So there, there's definitely a group of people that do want to look at aesthetics and cosmetics. And when we look at plant quality and, and the quality of cannabis, cosmetics is one of the main, main criteria that you have to look at because it, it does get judged. Uh, it gets put on Reddit. People talk about it. It can make or break your brand, especially if you're selling dry flour in a jar. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, the mass majority, they just look at it for two seconds, grind it up, and put it into pre-roll. And that, that's kind of what the data has showed us. Yeah, I, well, I, I think I think that's it's definitely a sensible way to look at it. But then when we're getting into, like, going further with aesthetics into, like, packaging, like, back in the day when Candescent first it came to market, they had they had extensive packaging. Like, it looked like a little gift. So you had, like, an oblong box that had a jar in it. It had a hemp wick. It had papers and matches. And I would have people who would be excited about that because they'd be like, oh, it's so pretty. It's precious. It'll make a great gift. But then I'd also have people who would look at me because they were disillusioned with the the new legalized like recreational market and the, how the prices went up so much compared to medical, which was already kind of expensive. And the first thing that comes out of their mouths is, um, am I paying for this or am I paying for the flower? And I was wondering, like with packaging and aesthetics, what you're what you're seeing with that too. Um. So in Canada, we don't have any packaging or aesthetics differentiation. So that, that part's always been difficult for producers because if you can't, well, what packaging is supposed to do is supposed to give you a cue. It's supposed to give you a cue on the quality of the product, the brand that you're selling, and have you tried it before and what kind of feelings did it give you. Uh, similarly to when you walk into a room and you and some of the baking cookies, uh, whether they're infused or not, you smell the cookies, you know they're cookies. Uh, and and that, that's kind of the, the same what would packaging is supposed to do. We don't have packaging in Canada, so everything is trial and error, which is, makes it very difficult. On the U.S. side, what we've seen is companies can come out with great packaging and they'll knock it out of the park in the beginning because of the novelty of fact. People come in, they get attracted to it, they want to buy it. They are paying for it at the end of the day. Like It doesn't come for free. Uh, it does come out of their, their, their pockets in terms of what they're buying. Uh, but then over time, the novelty wears off. And what really comes into play is what is what is the product? And is it, does the product match the packaging? And if it doesn't match the packaging, then what you're doing is you're, you're dressing up a not-so-premium product into a premium packaging, and you're trying to sell it for a high price. And consumers, they talk. They talk online. They talk to one another. Bartenders talk as well. And all of a sudden, you'll see your sales dip. And um, I love the candescent prop. Uh, product that I've always liked it, but yep. once upon a time they were number one. Now they're uh, top ten, so it, it's really moved over over that period of time. Um, again, at the end of the day, if if you're whether you're selling premium product or you're selling value product, you have to pick a side. There's no room in this market for a middle market mediocre product. Nobody wants to pay a mediocre price for a mediocre product. 
and said they, they want to know exactly what what side of the, the the fence they're on and once you pick that side you just need to hammer it out and really understand your consumer and build a product that your consumer likes and be okay of taking some of that negative feedback right right now with this past election that we had in the united states we're overwhelmingly seeing that most people are for cannabis legalization, um, and actually that it's 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 com- it's nonpartisan because I, I was doing a lot of work in Arkansas before their medical program passed, and you know Arkansas is not uh, across the board very liberal state. It's actually more on the conservative side, but they were still for cannabis. Or a couple of years ago, I actually. Um, met Michael Steele, the former head of the RNC, who's also in cannabis now. So we're seeing like a broad, a broad swath of our population is saying, you know, it's, it's time to legalize. Um, and so we've got a lot of people that are looking at the economic opportunities. And since I know that you totally have your eye on this, what are you seeing as far as cannabis subsectors where there are opportunities for entrepreneurs, because everybody is everybody's scrambling to to figure out what to do. Even though I would say, and maybe this is you know, I don't mean to be negative by this, but you know, in many ways, the green rush is over because we made the most money when there was more risk. Yes, I I, I still think there's opportunity for for making money. Like this industry is growing by. Uh, in Canada, it's eight to nine percent per month. In the U.S., it's over ten percent per month. This is an exponential growth opportunity. So even for those entrepreneurs listening right now and thinking that, should I get in, should I not? There's never been a better time to be an entrepreneur in the cannabis industry than it is right now. And you get in before federal legalization comes because it is going to come. Um, I think it's inevitable that'll take place. Question is, how long is that going to be? Is it going to be in Biden's first term? Is it going to be potentially in his second term? Um, but, uh, but, but it is coming. And if you, if, you, if you kind of take those as kind of the general ground rules and you think of what's coming up next, then you have to really look at the value chain of, of the industry. And uh, when I say value chain, I'm talking about cultivation, extraction, brands, uh, medical, veterinary, retail, all the way through to the consumer. And when you take a look at it from a value chain perspective, what you really do find is that there's a number of segments that um, are kind of fit all the bill of everything you want to look for in an investment. They are going to get large enough. They haven't been penetrated hard enough. They, um, they, they, they are going to be disruptive within the industry. They have the potential of a 10X. And these are the four categories that we're really uh, bullish on at Canopy Rivers. And the first one is brands, which I've, we've talked about for the majority of this, uh, this episode. The second piece is plant science. So up to this point, everything that we know about cannabis cultivation comes from the illicit market and the, um, the, the very few research projects that we've done an actual understanding of the genealogy or the genetics of this plant. And we're, we're now only starting to see these large agricultural companies, the, um, the, the Bayers and the Cortevas and the Shingentas really stepping in and saying, all right, well, we, we know how to create tobacco as a bulletproof product. We know how to create corn and soy as bulletproof uh, uh, crops as well. Let's find a way to bulletproof cannabis so that you can grow cannabis in Ontario or you can grow cannabis in Arkansas or you can grow cannabis in Texas and 
it's all going to be the same because the genetics cannot be fooled. And that, that's one of the areas we're really interested in uh, because nobody's really touched this plant. Nobody's really looked at this plant. And I'm not talking about genetically modifying it. I'm just saying let's understand the qualities and the traits that this plant has and find ways to make it more pest resistant so you don't have to use pesticides, make it more uh, yield more, make it create more oil so you have higher THC and CBD levels so you get more bang for your buck. And that, that's a whole sector that we're really interested in. And we made a couple of investments there with Bayer and uh, um, uh, Dow DuPont Pioneers Division, uh, and then Agtech Division. And then the, the second piece, we're, sorry, the third area we're really interested in, so there's brand plant science. The third one would be biosynthetics. This is the ability to create synthetic cannabinoids, the so CBD, THC, CBG, CBN, et cetera, through uh, programming a biological organism, yeast, bacteria, um, to, to understand how to create these cannabinoids. And then what you do is you use natural solvents to kill off the rest of the, the, rest of the, the bioorganism. And what you're left is with pure cannabinoids. And this is how the, 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 the pharmaceutical industry operates at this point in time. So take, take, a, take a drug like aspirin, great for headaches. Aspirin was founded off of the bark of, I think it was a willow tree. And, but you don't see any cultivation for willow trees all around the world in order to create aspirin. aspirin. Instead, the, the, the molecule is developed within uh, a lab. And we're going to see that in the cannabis space. And um, our, our thesis is you're probably not going to see that as much on the THC and CBD side because the plant readily creates that. But you're going to see a lot of that come for the other 98-plus cannabinoids that we don't know that much of, that we know the plant doesn't, that doesn't create as, as much quantity of that or as much volume of that. Um, regularly. So that's an area that we're also interested in. And the last piece of what, what I think is going to continue to pop is the technology sector. So we've been made, we, we've made investments in companies like LeafLink and Headset, um, and there's a number of them out there as well. We think Dutchie is fantastic for what they do, and we have a strategic relationship with them as well. And um, these are technology companies that are taking away a lot of the fragmentation that exists in the market today. So when you look at the the U.S. cannabis market, there are about 90 new cannabis products entering the, the U.S. market per week. And for any retailer out there, and a lot of retailers are owned, uh, are, are single store operators or two store operators, there's a large number of different parties that these brands need to talk to. And all these stores that are mom and pop shops all have to talk to a large number of brands. So a company like LeafLink comes in and they really clean that up and say, Let's make a technology platform that both these parties can talk to. Up to this point, we haven't seen large-scale Silicon Valley VCs invest in the cannabis space, but um, I, I predict that potentially by the by March of 2021, we're going to see a whole uh, wave of technology VCs really look at the space, and we're, we're really bullish about that the, the scaling capabilities of these companies. Yeah, every every time I I speak to a friend or colleague, uh, well, friend because colleague would be in the cannabis space, but old colleagues mm -hmm. from from other areas where I worked, they're they're constantly trying to ask me about you know what what should I invest in with cannabis? I'm really interested in it, um, and I I just always recommend that you know they just follow the market and study it. But if you had any sort of advice for people that might want to get involved on, on that end of the spectrum, what, what would you say to them? Uh, I mean, if, if you're coming in 
cold in the cannabis industry. I say you got to do a lot of research first before you put in a, a dollar into a specific company. Um, one of the things that we really focus in on is the operator. Um, and and I, I think that that's really important. So we do a lot of research on understanding the entrepreneur, the, the management team, the executive team, and how they um, think of the future and how they work with one another and how, what they've done up to this point in terms of traction. At the end of the day, I think it was Thomas Jefferson or Thomas Edison. I forget which one it was, but someone said that um, it, success is 99% perspiration and 1% inspiration. And it's not the idea that you need to buy into. It's the execution of that idea that you need to buy into. It's easy for someone to say, this is my idea. This is what I want to do in the industry. <clears throat> it's very hard for them to actually do it. Um, and that's why you don't see any markets for ideas out there. So if you're brand new to the cannabis industry and you want to invest in it, go buy an ETF exchange traded fund, uh, you get diversification amongst all the companies. If you want to go deeper and deeper into the industry, the, the main point they really have to dig into is the management team and how much do you believe in their ability to succeed uh, and to execute because that, that's what it really comes down to. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you mentioned, you mentioned some of the things that, that, that attract you to um, a potential investment, but are there, are there other aspects in in the different models of of cannabis businesses uh that really catch your eye um it, it really like what, what we really look forward what we really look forward to is uh horizontal integration so the the analogy i like to use is the technology industry and if we go back to the early 2000s and you were a company that was creating uh, pet foods online and you're creating an e-commerce platform for pet food. So people could come into the website and buy pet food. You would have to do everything yourself. You'd have to build the website from scratch using HTML. You'd have to build your own payment platform so that people, you could accept payment from credit cards and, uh, and, and other accounts. You'd have to create your own uh, marketing um, software in order to make sure that every customer that comes in, your, your login, what IP address there is and how they react to the, to, to the website so that you can follow up with them with advertisements. You have to bring build your own entire advertisement channel. You also have to house all that data internally. So half of your building would be servers that would be running that, that data and making sure that as many customers as come onto the website, your, your website wouldn't crash and give them a bad experience. We don't have that anymore in the technology industry. Instead, we have service providers. We have Shopify to do your e-commerce. We have PayPal to do your payment processing. We have GoDaddy uh, or, or Wix to be your domain and your website development. We have turnkey solutions for all of these. In the cannabis industry, we're, we're slowly seeing that take place. And that's the thesis that we've really went forward with is that the, the, the days of one company trying to do everything themselves from cultivation to extraction to CPG to medical to veterinary to owning the retail is gone. And if you're looking at a cannabis company and really trying to assess it, really dig deep on say, what are the one to three things that this company does very, very, very well? And are they focusing on that? Or are they consistently looking at what grass is doing on what side of the street and trying to try to be everything to everyone? And that kind of focus, and you've seen that with TrueLeave in, in, uh, in, in, in Florida, and you've seen that with Lowell & Co. in California, that kind of focus of this is my bread and butter, and this is what I'm going to focus in on as has blueprints of success written all over it. Now, whether they execute on that or not is is what you really have to do diligence on. But if they're not focused and specialized in doing what they want to do, they're going to get outmaneuvered by another competitor very easily that's 
passionate and focused on that segment of the value chain. That's some really good advice. Getting a little micro on you. Craft sure. cult, craft cultivators. So we used to have a lot of small cultivators in California. And with legalization, it became very difficult for some of them to survive. Now, when I look at it, I think about, and, and you know, and I hate, and, and then I'm going to preface it with what everyone prefaces, with, prefaces it with when they say this. I hate comparing cannabis to alcohol. I do. But it's the closest thing that we have. But when we look at, like, in the 90s when microbreweries started coming into play and we started seeing smaller craft brewers and people who were fans of that, do you do you see a resurgence in in small craft growing cultivation um and and where do you where do you see that in the mix um so my, my quick answer would be yes and no so the, the difference between the alcohol industry uh, I'll, I'll pick on beer because it's probably the it's an easier anecdote the beer industry and, and the cannabis industry is that if I were to take the top 10 beer brands and I was to list them out, most people who are beer drinkers would say that they've tried seven, eight, 10 of them. So um, that would be like Corona and Budweiser and, and Coors uh, and, and all these names that, that, that we mentioned. People are probably like, yeah, I've tried them once upon a time. And once you've gone through those mass market brands is when you start appreciating craft brands because they do it differently than what these mass market brands do. I don't think the cannabis industry is at a point in time right now where we've tried all the major brands. Like I'm looking at California right now and between Lowell and Sublime and Jeter and Candescent and Dimebag and Nug and Godjigal, Pure Beauty, Pacific Stone, Pacific Reserve is the top 10 uh, uh, brands within the, the market today. Um, I, I don't think anybody has tried more than two of them really from, from a mass market perspective. So until we go through that, the, the trial and error of these large mass market brands, understanding what we want. We don't appreciate the, the craft cannabis uh, sector yet. Now, craft cannabis has its own niche following, which are hardcore flower users that really understand the plant. The ones that we mentioned before that really look at cosmetic appeal. Um, and we're just not there yet. But the, the that was my no side of that, that answer. My yes side of that answer is that what craft cannabis producers can do is provide some variety for these large brands. So if I'm like a Lowell and Herb and I I put the same product on the shelf over and over again, I've created a stable following. Well, maybe it's the holiday season. I want to put something out there that's festive. It's this limited time edition. It's a different taste, same brand, but different flavor. Uh, you can't always get this. You should try this out before it gets sold out. But tenders know it's going to get sold out very quickly as well. And you create that type of scarcity using craft cultivated products. Then, it, then you can really push the, the different varieties of production that, that you just don't see in the market today. So that, that's where I think craft producers can, can really uh, hone in on. And we're seeing that in the Canadian market, albeit not as good as I was hoping it to be. But we're starting to see large companies like Canadian Growth saying that, you know what, I'm going to bring out a, a holiday product for this, for this uh, season. And it's going to be limited time. And let's see how it does. And, and that, that's where I think at this point in time, craft can play until the market matures to a point where we appreciate the the, the subtle differences between these brands. I wonder if that was is going to happen when 
I, I wonder how the impact of interstate commerce, when that finally happens, how that will move things around, especially because, you know, a lot of the larger players, a lot of the larger cultivators will definitely be moving into those other markets. And I'm kind of wondering how that's going to impact the appreciation of cannabis. Yeah, I mean, um, I think that's a, that's a very good point. Uh, the interstate commerce is going to change a lot. You're going to see cannabis starting to grow in different parts of the U.S. Uh, a lot more than you are right now. That's going to be put into other um, other areas. Like I, I don't, I never understand why anybody wants to go after the New York market uh, as a as a cultivator because, uh, or, or even San Francisco, call it because the the real estate values are so high, uh, and and it really impacts the cost. Why not cultivate in Arizona or Texas and then push it into the rest of the U.S. And I think that that's where we're going to see major differences and um, and absolutely from the from the craft side that gives those companies an ability to go beyond their own borders but um, but the difficulty they're going to face is scale like they're not the, the reason their craft is is that they don't have such a large facility so how can you provide your product to different states when you can't really grow that much you're, you're, you're constrained by the four walls around you. Right. That's like uh, when I go back to Michigan and I get my, my Bell's microbrew. <laughs> like everyone from Michigan, when you, know, yeah. you, you go home to visit and they're like, did you bring any Bell's back? Because, <laughs> you know, we don't get that over yeah. here. Um, but I think, I think in some ways it's like it makes it more precious and, and more special when it is that limited. I, I know I, I enjoy it, but then I tend to be – I, I, t I tend to have like, I like, I like to be a connoisseur of things. Like I, I like to nerd out on that kind of stuff. Um, what, what, what else do you want to talk about today? Cause I've just bombarded you with so many questions and it's just been, it's been wonderful and fascinating to have you on the podcast. Yeah, I really appreciate that. I mean, like there, I, I love having conversation. We've had a great one here in terms of talking about how we see the market, how things are playing out. Um, uh, a big, a big part of what, what I like to really focus on these days is the diversity initiative, and I, I think we've done a um, we're doing a better job day over day by day. But I think we need to do more in terms of making sure the underrepresented uh, groups within society have the ability to uh, and, and the chance and the opportunity um, and, and the privilege to start their own companies and have those companies succeed. So. Um, I've, I've really been honing deep on whenever we're looking at companies to really understand who's operating them. Is there an ability to create more of a diverse set of management or owners within the company, whether that be women or um, minority groups? Um, and, and I think that that's something that um, we don't talk about as much uh, today. And if you look at all the people that have helped us um, get to where we are today with states legalizing cannabis for adult use and medical use and having even having cannabis on the agenda for federal legalization, we need to really look at those underrepresented groups within uh, our, our industry today uh, and give them kudos and give them a chance to play within this field uh, because they're, they're the ones that have really been pushing us towards legalization in the first place. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree that there should be more opportunities, and it's 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 in many ways a form of restorative justice because 
as we know, black and brown communities were impacted the most by the war on drugs. And speaking of that, in Canada, what's going on as far as like, I know here in California, we've been doing expungements and, you know, really trying to help people um, get sentencing off of their records. Are, is anything like that happening in, in Canada? Not as much as you want it to be. I mean, there's always been talk. There's been there was a number of ways of, of, of movement there as well, but um, it, it's still it's still not where you want it to be. Yeah. And, and you can get you get in part in because it's federally legal now, and, and hopefully the same similar situation will happen in the U.S. But uh, at this point in time, it's still it's still underrepresented. Like you look at the um, the, the CEOs of these large cannabis companies and. Um, they, they don't represent the, the, the consumer base statistically of, of who buys the product. So it's something that really definitely needs to change over time. Yeah. Well, we've got a, we've got a lot of work to do. Um, I, I just want to thank you. We do, but it's exciting, right? Like yeah. that, that's what, that, that's what gets, wakes me up every day and gets me so into this industry is that it's not over. Like the growth rate, the, how fast we're moving, what companies are going up, what companies are going down. Like all of that just makes it for this really this giant soap opera, and then this dramatic um, roller coaster that that I, I enjoy waking up to every single day. Oh, it's it's so stimulating. It's I I love it. I mean, that's when people you know ask me, or sometimes you know because I have I have so much experience with the products and the plants and, and the people, people will say, oh, you know, you're, you're an expert in cannabis. Or when people say they're an expert in cannabis, I kind of chuckle because I'm like, no, nobody is an expert. We're always learning. That's the beautiful thing of this. This is what I love. You know, we're constantly stimulated. So if you're a person who likes to consistently learn and, and dig in and, and be busy, this is, this is an excellent, this industry is an excellent opportunity to do that. I really, Absolutely. really yeah, um, we're, we're getting close up onto an hour and, um, and I could, I could talk so much more with you. Um, I would love to have you on again if, if you'd be down for that. Um, yeah, absolutely. would love to do that. Yeah. And, um, and for our listeners who want to be able to follow Canopy Rivers and you and just kind of see what's going on, um, on how can they reach you online? So you can go to canopyrivers.com, www.canopyrivers.com, and you can, you can take a look at our portfolio, at our thought pieces, on how we see this industry progressing, on, on what we're, we're, we're doing uh, to, to, to take things forward. You can also follow us on Instagram, at uh, Canopy Rivers Inc., as well as on Twitter, which is, again, at Canopy Rivers Inc., uh, and, and keep track of everything that's going on uh, within our portfolio, within our thought leadership, uh, and our pieces on the thesis of how we see this giant industry but yet uh consistently blooming industry moving forward now narbe thank you so much Uh, everybody this is narbe alexandrian president ceo of canopy rivers um great episode so so excited to be able to nerd out with you um for our listeners (laughs) if you want to check us out on social media um on instagram we're planted with sarah we're also planted with sarah on facebook and twitter uh for our website it's www.com plantedwithsarah.com and of course we can be listened to on our parent network uh, Radio Misfits Network Amazon, Google Apple, Stitcher Pandora and Spotify so stay tuned 
as I mentioned in our last episode, we are going to two episodes a month. We have an exciting new episode in December with a special guest. So check it out. And until we meet again, be safe, be good to each other. It's a crazy world out there and we will see you next time. Take care.